What's up, everybody? This is Grant at Cause Artist. Welcome to another episode of the Disruptors for Good podcast. Today, we're going to speak with Deanne Eisner, the CEO of Bicor and the co-founder of the Neighborhood Start Fund and a venture partner at Obvious Ventures. She has an incredible history. Um, she has worked at some of the biggest companies in the world. All you will probably know of as, as we, we talk about them and go through them. But her journey is super, super impressive. And I think it's it's an inspirational story for not only sort of women around the world, but also just individuals in general who don't take traditional paths, you know, to get to where she is at. And I think going through through some of her story is it's pretty amazing to talk about, pretty amazing to learn from her as well. So like I said, she's the co-founder and CEO of Bicor, a venture-backed construction labor marketplace, which we'll get into a little bit more about exactly what that is. And previously, she worked at Waze, later Google for 10 years, where she started the U.S. office of Waze in 2009, and that was acquired by Google in 2013 for a billion dollars. Waze was. She ran growth, business development, and platform for Waze. While at Waze, she also founded the Connected Citizens Program, which worked with 800 cities and departments of transportation to use data to reduce congestion and improve emergency response times. She also serves on the board of the Gray Area Foundation of the Arts. She's a venture partner at Obvious Ventures and is the co-founder with Lupe Fiasco of the Neighborhood Start Fund, a neighborhood-based micro-fund in underserved urban neighborhoods, which we, we talk a lot about. That's something that she's very passionate about, I'm very passionate about. So we really focus a lot at the end of the conversation on the Neighborhood Start Fund. So again, I think it's a fascinating conversation about you know Silicon Valley, working at really, really big companies, using Silicon Valley and the best parts about it to look at underserved sectors in our society and help improve them through technology, you know, through artificial intelligence, and just through opportunity, I think essentially is what she really stresses about is opportunity and the equality amongst not, not only sort of opportunity, but the equality of technology and how that needs to be gifted to, to sort of everybody in some sort of way to where everybody, we all have the opportunities to have better careers and, and improve our lives in every aspect that we can. It's just the tools have not traditionally been there for a lot of these sectors in, in you know American society. Um, so it's a, it's a really, really interesting conversation about a lot of different things. I hope you enjoy it. Again, as always, grant at causeartist.com if you have any questions or requests. Hope everybody's staying safe, staying healthy. Enjoy today, enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Usually how I like to, to start these conversations is about the journey to, to get to where an individual is at in, in their life and, and sort of their mission at, at, at this point. You've had a fantastic journey working with some of the most incredible companies in the world. I think a lot of big names that people will know and, and big startups that sort of have done a lot of big things. Uh, so you can kind of start wherever you want, kind of if you want to kind of pick a phase uh, and start there. Well, I guess you have to start a little far back, not with a lot of detail, but I think how I grew up and where I come from is a really important part of my story. Sure. So I think a lot of the people who listen to your show might relate to this. I don't think it's very common Silicon Valley story, but incredibly humble roots, a typical American story, single mom who worked three jobs. I think the person with the best job in my family was a truck driver in terms of making the most money and having mm. the most freedom and all of that. Uh, and so I come from really a family of 
truck drivers, tradesmen, you know, real working class, phenomenal family, but very different than the experience I have right now and the experience that my children have. Sure. And then, you know, the journey from this town that I'm from called Brockton, Massachusetts, it's, it's a pretty rough town. And actually there's one of my investors in Waze uh, is from a neighboring town. And, and you just don't find many people from there out here. And so we used to joke that we can help you with your startup or in a bar fight. <laughs> help you with. Uh, and so that's where I'm from. But I moved to New York for school and then strangely did not go to school for tech, computer science. It, it wasn't... It, it wasn't that at all. I, I, was painting, huh? I was a painter. I thought I was going to be a painter. Anyway, mm -hmm. I loved art. I loved painting. I couldn't wait to get to New York. It was, in my eyes, the land of opportunity. And, and from my experience, it truly was. So I went to NYU. So I moved to New York for that. Shortly after arriving there, I realized that I was a pretty horrible painter, even though I loved it. But I realized I wouldn't have a career in that. So sure. I picked up business as well. So I ended up double majoring. While in New York... I spent a lot of time in places like East New York, Brooklyn, lots of time in, in the projects there, unfortunately attended too many funerals, too many, too many people dying young, really just had a lot of experience there and was, uh, was, was pretty heavily impacted by it. In addition to all kinds of other experiences, right? I, I flow through circles and communities my whole life just because I'm drawn to different kinds of people and experiences. So I, I also had, you know, different interactions. I think I, I learned what a trust fund was for the first time going to art school, you know? So those two um, phases of my life were really important because they set the groundwork for, for what I would care about doing um, as I got older. Ended up living in all kinds of places, lived in Amsterdam, lived in New York for a long time, moved back to Amsterdam, moved to Portland, Oregon, uh, moved to Silicon Valley. And I only moved to Silicon Valley in 2009. Uh, and before that, I had had a lot of interactions, but it was like, oh, whatever happens, I don't want to live there. You know, right? <laughs> it was not the place I was drawn to. A lot of entrepreneurs are drawn to Silicon Valley as like the Hollywood of, of, mm. of startups. And for me, it was just, I was such a city person and I craved the diversity in the culture of cities. So it was not ever my expectation that I would come out here to live. Um, I think I didn't understand how good the weather was mm. at the time. Anyway, it's fantastic. Uh, it's, but, what, it's what the high oh, taxes are for. You just pay for good weather. Somehow they figure that out. <laughs> it's, it's a climate tax. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I mean, I think that's, it was four ways that I ended yeah. up moving here. And, you know, our investors were here. All of our partnerships were here. Uh, it really was the kind of place where I needed to be. Our whole team didn't need to live here. The team primarily remained in Israel, but in order to do my business side work, I needed to be here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I moved here for one year and then I thought, okay, one more year. And now it's been 11 years and I don't think I'll ever leave. Yeah, it's tough. It, they, yeah, it's a tough place to leave once you're embedded there and kind of just experience all it has to offer. It's, it's a very it's a very tough place to leave just because it's it's just so uncommon, right? It's just such a, a different place. Of you're any constantly other place. surrounded by people with vision and ideas and motivation mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, so many smart people. And then, like I said, the weather and the nature, it's its really beautiful. But it has to be balanced out with other places. Yeah, totally. Uh, you and have to definitely get out of the bubble. <laughs> yeah, that's true, too. We'll, we'll talk about getting out of the bubble, too, for sure, a little bit a little bit later. So we go from Waze, and then Waze gets bought by, by Google. So do you, you sort of join Google for a little bit. Talk a little bit just quickly about that experience and, I guess, what you learned from that. Oof. <laughs> that was 
such an incredible journey. It, it was really the journey of a lifetime, both personally and professionally. I loved the Ways experience. I loved my teammates there. I loved the work we did. I loved how we did it. I loved the culture of the company. And it was the first time I saw real success from the inside that I really contributed to that level of success. You know, we sold the company for over a billion dollars. And, you know, you're looking at each other like, did we just do that? Like, <laughs> did, did it all just work out the way right. we thought we did? So there's something that happens to you when you realize that you've achieved something. And, and of course, you know, some of it's luck and some of it's timing and yep. whatever, but it changes the expectation of what you think you can accomplish. Mm. And so for me, that was a crazy journey. It was a great validating experience. Obviously, I it was personally, it was my rags to riches moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and then just being, being accepted by something the size and skill and influence of Google mm -hmm. was, um, was really exciting. It was, and sometimes it was difficult to navigate, you know, go, you go from this crazy Israeli startup, you know, chaotic environment to an environment that is much more risk averse, mm. that is much more process oriented right. and corporate and all of that. And so, uh, so there were tricky things, but I feel I just, I learned a ton. I had more fun before Google, but I learned so much more after Google, really, you know, how to get things done at the scale of Google. Google really is its own scale, nothing mm -hmm. the scale of what we had dealt with before. Uh, you're talking about billions of people and, yeah. and having influence and responsibility and accountability, which is something that you don't have to worry about as much when you're a startup. You just don't have the influence. And so from there, spent a, a little bit of time at WeWork, as much as you want to go into it, but if you want to give us a quick sort of overview of that experience as well. <laughs> you have to laugh every time you say how oh, a WeWork experience, I think to anybody that was different, there. Different than Google, I would imagine. Huh? <laughs> so different. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So between Waze and Google, I was there for uh, just about 10 years. Yeah. So that was really the bulk of my career. And then... You know, I had um, been working on this urban systems lab at Google, and I really started caring deeply about urban development and what was yeah. going on in cities. And, and at Waze, I had started something called the Connected Citizens Program. Mm -hmm. And this was a data exchange where we could take the information we had on Waze with no, nothing personally identifiable, but what were the speeds, what are the incidents, and package it up and give it to cities in their traffic operation centers, mm -hmm. and they could use that to reduce congestion and improve emergency response times. And it was super successful. It was in something like 800 cities. And wow. I was like, I couldn't believe how much we could achieve with so little data and so little technology and how valuable it was outside of the, the tech realm. So then I did that at Waze. I expanded it into Google. And then I met Adam Newman. Adam was the CEO of WeWork. Uh, I had been on the board of Meetup which was a oh, yeah. company that we sold to, to, yep. to WeWork prior. So that's how I learned about WeWork. I didn't really know about it before. I had never heard of Adam. Meetup uh, is a great, Meetup's phenomenal company. Meetup is fantastic. Yeah. And Scott Heiferman, the founder, is a true innovator in terms of community and technology and, and doing right. And, and, and he's, he's exactly the kind of entrepreneur that I, I would support and follow. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the good guys. So that's how I heard about WeWork. I had been working with this kind of architect and urban designer uh, on this kind of vision for how things could go. Like, how do you create a tiny city that takes mm -hmm. a lot of the 
practices of, you know, integrated, sustainable water, electricity, like in tiny city, meaning the way we're doing tiny houses now, mm-hmm. it's a way to learn about having a very efficient ecosystem. And that efficient ecosystem would also include things like beautiful outdoor space that would be good for people culturally. Uh, so we were, we were playing around with some of these ideas. And he also happened to be a very good friend, this person I was working with, Drawer, with Adam. And uh, he convinced me to meet with him. And I had some reservations for sure, mm-hmm. going in, I, things I had read, it was a very non-traditional company, uh, but I have no problem with non-traditional companies. I have no problem with narcissistic CEOs. <laughs> Most sure. of them Most are. Of, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> so, so those things didn't bother me. And, and actually, when I went in to meet with Adam and I talked about the things that did bother me, like I had read some things in the press about their creative finances. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a community adjusted EBITDA, I think was the one that I asked him about in that original meeting. And I had asked him about some things I heard about gender bias and there, there had been a, been a scandal going on there. And, and I really liked his responses, you know, and, and he took, he took a lot of accountability for them, mm-hmm. and particularly on the gender thing. You know, he said, look, we are on our way to resolve that issue. He's like, we were going too fast. We were not being serious enough. I am a young CEO. I'm going to make mistakes. And I just don't want to make the same ones over again and like come and help me do better. So that's the kind of attitude that I really embraced. It had traces of humility. It had traces of like, all right, we acknowledge the flaws of the past. Let's go forward. Right. Um, and then on the creative financing, I'm not a finance person. I know a lot, right? I'm a venture partner, sure. I'm a venture fund, but I'm definitely not the person who could be in the weeds of all of this. Sure. So kind of kicking myself for not going deeper at that time. But he was like, oh no, this is just a chance for my CFO. We're all so creative and my CFO didn't have a chance to be creative. This was his way to be creative and I'm just supporting it. And I'm like, all right. So, In retrospect, all I was doing was drinking the Mm Kool-Aid, but I liked the answers. And so we we had this, you know, period of time where we we spent a lot of time together and and I took the plunge and we, it was a risk worth taking Mm -hmm. because I started an entirely new division of the company. It was the city's division. It was about taking a lot of what what they were building inside of the office space and bringing it outside into the world. So for example, if you can access your office space, can you use that same set of credentials to access the subway? Mm. Um, The kind of services that a lot of campuses have inside of companies, can we turn that inside out so city is a campus, right? And then you, we could have the amenities, so many people were part of WeWork and in WeWork spaces. If we could make sure that we didn't bring those uh, resources inside and we put them into the community, that's an awful lot of money going to small business, local right, business. Right. So we had some pretty grand visions and we had the budget to back it up and we had the strength of team to back it up. But unfortunately, uh, as time would show, and I was only there for nine months, Mm-hmm. Um, and it was from my perspective and from my team's perspective, a really productive period of time. We had already launched product. We had already started generating revenue. I mean, this was a phenomenally fast time. Wow. We hired a fantastic team and we were out here. We didn't realize mm. or didn't pay attention to the fact that the culture in the New York office or in other places was so toxic and that there was so much, so much going on that we were not paying attention to. I definitely take 
take credit for the the how little I was integrated into some of those other issues. I really didn't press on it. I was focused on our team mm -hmm. uh, and I missed a lot of what was happening and I shouldn't have and I won again. Uh, but yeah, there was a time in September where somebody pulled me aside and uh, confided in me that we had three months of cash. That had to be you a little gut punch. Huh? About to go public. Right. I mean, it was so it was like it was like weeks away, weeks away from weeks away, weeks away, weeks away, and you know, hearing rumors and 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 all of this, and reading in the press that you know uh, analysts were valuing us at coming out between a sixty yeah. and ninety billion dollar valuation, right. and then in a matter of weeks to hear that we had like yeah. almost no cash in the bank. You know, like, how did this level of mismanagement mm. occur? Yeah. Um, and uh, the level of complexity was just too too much, and and the level of um, I don't know the culture. The culture was bad. The culture yeah. was bad. I didn't see it at the time, but the, there was just a lack of you know trying to think how to say this. There are things I criticize in Silicon Valley, right? Sure. Like the the fact that we're in a bubble. There can be some passive aggressive things. There can be some elitist tendencies. But at the end of the day, you know where you stand. Everyone can sit around the table with pretty much transparency and be like, yes, I'm making this decision because of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We work used that mask. It masked itself mm -hmm. in that. But it really was a New York real estate mm -hmm. company gone rogue with all of the cultural, financial creativity lies whatever yeah. whatever it was the things that and um yeah wow it was quite a ride lessons learned from that or you know you, you'll take them with you forever now right now if that something like that comes again you know the questions to ask right and you know what yeah, questions exactly. to dig deeper into and, and i'm so thankful it was nine months i have an incredibly good friend who was there for 10 years wow yeah years. you know I mean, and he has just been slaughtered financially emotionally mm -hmm. psychologically i mean it's it's uh it was tough yeah. People. yeah. I want to go back to, to something you said earlier about growing up in your family, because I think that's a good segue into what you're doing now with Core. And it, it seems to be taking this Silicon Valley sort of philosophy, right, of, of sort of using technology to scale, embed, it, embed that technology into disrupting businesses or sectors, really, that just haven't been tapped, right? And we'll, we'll go into a little bit with the, with the Neighborhood Start Fund, too, because I think there's a little bit of that in that, too. But with Core, did you look, at, look back on your family because they are, you know, skilled middle-class workforce, right? And sort of Silicon Valley has not really paid attention to that sector, right? And, and just the just how technology has matured, that sort of skilled labor market has not been sort of disrupted yet, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit what Core is and what the what the sort of mission is behind it, and, and why you even started it. That's a lot of questions packed into one, but yes. they're all related. Okay, so first of all, what is it? So Core or Bicore. Uh, as we call it, it's a construction labor marketplace. So it's a way for if you're in the skilled trades or you're a construction laborer or you want to go into that career path, it's it can be tricky, yeah. right? You need to be sponsored. It's hard to access work, to access trainings, access all this stuff. Um, if you're in a union, then you have access. But very few unions provide the kind of quality. And some of them are fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, but less than 9% of construction workers are in unions these days. Hmm. That's 9%. So that's leaving like over 90% that are left to fend for themselves and are often taken advantage of. And that's just in the US. Right. Uh, this is a global issue. There's 180 million people around the world in this industry. We got to use this Silicon Valley tools, technology, automation, yep. Yep. to get the friction out just so yep. that we can provide access. So it's a construction labor marketplace. It's a way for companies to come in 
find people uh, that are going to be the right skills. We have all kinds of, you know, fancy uh, matching algorithms like mm -hmm. worker rank, like we had, you know, very similar to page rank at Google, but its sole purpose is to serve the worker mm -hmm. uh, and make sure that they have access to full suite of career development. Like when you're inside of Google, it's like, what do you want to do in six months? What do you want to mm -hmm. do in five years? And you know what? Here's your plan. And here's all the people who can help you with that plan. And here's what you would need to learn. And that doesn't exist in the trades uh, unless, except for the unions. And I just feel like builders are some of the most important people on the planet, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you look at the military, they've somehow marketed to teens that it's the best job Interesting. ever, right? Yeah, and for sure. It's so fun, right? You get, and it's not that they don't tell they don't show you like killing people and all of that. They show you invisibility cloak and cool toys and technologies and tools, but they don't call it tech because tech now people think of elite. Mm -hmm. Construction hasn't really done that yet. And as an industry, it's really starting to, but imagine you're 17 and you're like, oh, wow. Do you see that autonomous bulldozer I can use? Right. Now I'm doing drone inspections for this and it's fun. It's much more yeah. like gaming. And if you can grasp those new tools and technologies that are not replacing people, they're just making their jobs safer and more fun, mm -hmm. then you're gonna get a lot more people who wanna come in. And so this is my long way around, but the big vision is to support the people that are building the world, right? And and that's that's everything to me. Yeah, it's just almost, it's just putting a little bit of a marketing hat on into that industry, because that, like you said, when the military does it, you see these flying, flying jets, right? And travel the world. And, and they just yeah. hired a really good marketing agency and had a big budget, right? To and you know what? That's what you can do in the trades. <laughs> yeah, you can 100%. go to any country you want in the trades. Yeah. You, can, you can have this career development. It's just, it's too hard to find. It's too fragmented. And that's a perfect Silicon Valley challenge, which is take all this data, take all this information, take all these disparate parts, bring it together so it's easy to find. It's not about imposing our culture, imposing all that. That said, there are some parts of, of construction culture that are really negative mm -hmm. uh, and not worker focused. Mm -hmm. And I can't wait to bring that to bring that out. Has that been a struggle at all as far as penetrating that that sort of part of the industry? It's too early for me to tell. Uh, but um, there have been uh, there has been a racist argument already on one of our Facebook posts our ads. And so that's, that's something that I haven't experienced in a company that I've started before. Cause it's, you know, uh, we're confronting like the real deal. Mm -hmm. It's the real deal. Yeah. And then about my family. Yeah. Yeah. So Good. Yeah. My aunt and uncle, oh my gosh, they're like, you know, all these people going to college and everybody feeling like you have to go to college. This is terrible. That like, so I grew up like, stop trying to get like, like most of my cousins all went to trade school because my family feels that that's just better than college. And part of the reason my mom wanted me to go to college, I think was because uh, I was a girl. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't get a real job, mm -hmm. right? Like being in the trades. But I, I truly feel that my family thinks I have a real job for the first time now. That yes. like, okay, finally she's come around. You know, they're super proud of me, but now they're like much more into what they're doing. Now you're successful. Now you've yeah. reached it. Now you've reached it. <laughs> oh. So one of the most interesting things that, look, I mean, you've already led an extraordinary life. All the things you've done so far, but and also the venture uh, side of things that you have that we, we probably won't get to tap into too much because I really wanted to talk about sort of the Neighborhood Start Fund and the foundations of that 
how that came to be, sort of that's overall mission. Because to me, what I'm passionate about is delivering everything that technology has to offer to parts of America that have forgotten and just not have been invested into the correct way for, for so many years. I, I always tell people it's amazing that you could look at a neighborhood like when I was born and then like, you know, three decades later, it looks the exact same, you know, and, and that's like, that's, that's a, that's a, a problem that I think we failed as like Americans, you know, I don't look at it as like one yeah. rate. One race did this or one political party did this. Not like That's a community issue. That's like an American issue that we have failed at, right? And I think that as, as technology continues to expand and scale into markets that it just traditionally hasn't really penetrated yet and training individuals there on just what entrepreneurship is, how to use technology to to scale companies and and look scale means different to a lot of things right scale in a neighborhood in new orleans or baltimore will mean so much different than scale to a silicon valley company right um so i think using again using all the philosophies you learn and taking it into this this mechanism like that's kind of really what I'm interested about. I'd love you to speak a little bit more about what it is and, and how did it come to be? I'm so in love with this. I mean, I so this whole theme of that you mentioned, uh, it's so important to me of getting what we have in Silicon Valley out of Silicon Valley mm -hmm. uh, because it's very, very powerful what we have. Yep. I look at it like a natural resource that shouldn't be locked mm. up, but needs to be able to be tapped and shared mm -hmm. uh, across the country, across the world. And so one way to do that is by core, right? Um, and that's one group of people who I feel like have been underserved by technology. And the yep. other way is through Neighborhood Start Fund. Neighborhood Start Fund is a very small venture fund that I started with Lupe Fiasco, the rapper. And he and I were in the same leadership program at the Aspen Institute called mm. the Henry Cow Fellowship. So we were in the same class. That's how we met. And everything I care about is related to equitability. Uh, that's kind of my my thing. And as we were talking, it was very, very important to him too. And we thought we should team up. You know, I had some money to invest. I had um, the ear of the tech community. Mm -hmm. He had uh, the ear of everybody else. And so we started it in Brownsville, in Brownsville, Brooklyn, because we, we partnered with a great group called the Dream Big Foundation there. Uh, and it was essentially um, idea competitions for startups mm -hmm. in underserved communities uh, that are super creative and dense and just don't have access to these kind of things at all. And I, I wanted it to be idea stage because if you've never been invited or had money to or seen tech programs and all of this, you can't come in and code and know what a prototype is. So I wanted to get in before right. that get the creative people. So we would have pitch competitions. Winners would get $5,000 for us to make their prototypes. And then we would invest $25,000 if they made their first prototypes. Wow. Um, and we have about 10 companies in the portfolio so far. Again, it's very, very small. Um, but one of the entrepreneurs, I'm so proud. So uh, he's so amazing, so amazing. <laughs> ben he was uh, homeless prior to, to, to this or at one stage in his life. He was one of the fastest learning people in terms of product, in terms of teaching himself to code, in terms of like going through the hard times and just, just everything, the perseverance and super humble through the whole thing. So he pivoted his company after he invested in it. I invested it again. Um, <laughs> and, and then 
I ended up hiring him. It wasn't working out quite yet. So I hired him at WeWork mm-hmm. to be a product manager because he's that good. So he came out here to Silicon Valley. He took everything, all of this, packaged it all up, just got funded again last week for his <laughs> app too deep. I'm an investor, but guess what else? So is Kleiner Perkins. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can you um, tell us a little bit about what it is? Yeah, so it's um, it's a it's an app for um, emotional well-being. Mm. Um, it's it's called Too Deep. It's anonymous, though, right? So oh, there's so much stigma around saying yeah. what's going on. Like if you're hurt, if you're depressed, if you're angry, particularly in Black and Brown communities. Right. And so he has this app where it's all voice, it's all sound, and you're sharing, but it's anonymous. And this is such a pivotal point in the country's psyche uh, that everybody has anxiety, depression. We're all scared and uneasy about the future. There's so much coming out right now, so much that's been exposed about, like you said, the things we've done wrong. And so people are just gravitating to this app, and I'm so excited about it. But I look at this this guy, and I think I funded him for the first time in 2016. So it has been four years. This is not a fast process to go from idea stage, no training whatsoever into this. Right? 100%. Yeah. Um, and I'm just so impressed. Now, I'll, and then he's gone from homeless to won 5K hmm. in Brownsville, Brooklyn at a pitch competition to move to Silicon Valley, got a job as a product manager at a big company and is now funded by one of the top tier investors. Like, so exciting. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I don't expect to have a gigantic influence with this fund, right? Because it's small, but I want the case studies. I want the stories to show that everybody else should be doing this too. And that together we can, we can all do it. And that, you know, we need creative ideas and great innovation to come from every corner of the country. I mean, I've, Last year, a couple of years ago, I went to Eastern Kentucky. Same thing. Very yeah. different group right. um, of people, but still underserved. And it's, you know, so I'm looking at the rural communities. I just want to sprinkle around this, like, good fortune and, and, and knowledge that I got in Silicon Valley to places where it doesn't exist yet. Yeah, I know. I, I guess the, my question would be is that, like, why is it so small, right? Like, why aren't these the funds getting the funding necessary? Right. Like what's what's sort of the what's the dilemma? Like what's the hurdles that need to get over where, you know, the neighborhood start fund or funds like that. Right. Are, you know, hundred million dollar funds. Then no questions asked. Like this is a necessary investment. Right. Like where, yeah. where we have the same thing as Brownsville. We have like like in New Orleans where I'm from. And again, like like Baltimore and Miami. Look, there's <laughs> endless cities. Right. Every major state has a city that is extremely underserved. And could use something exactly like this, right? To fuel, even if like that one person that came out of the program, like now his total, his entire life has changed, right? That's, that's an amazing thing to happen. And like that one little case study to me is enough value to keep it spreading. I wish I could answer that question. You know, I'm thinking a lot about that now during the like one, two punch of COVID-19 and Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter. Uh, All these all these people came out of the woodwork and are like, now we're investing in black founders. Now we're doing this. Now we're doing that. And I don't want to criticize them because I'm glad, but I'll tell you that some of those guys I went to with my guys three years ago right. and they're like, we'll help, we'll help, we'll help. And they did nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I hope that they've actually learned and that this is real and not trendy, mm-hmm. but we won't know for another couple of years. Cause right now there is real money coming into it now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I hope that it's true progress 
and not like, oh, I feel bad. People are going to call me out. So I'm going to put some money here now. But I'll tell you, it's not just the money. Like right. you got to be in Brownsville. You got to be in, in Longdale and Southside. I mean, you, you just, it, you know, South LA, you have to be in these places. And I want to see, I challenge these Silicon Valley people to not just give capital and long-term capital to this, but to go, to go to cross the border, to be there, to get out of this and learn from each other, be together. Cause it's not just about money. You know it, how I see it and how I see it, you could scale it while being in all those places at one time is <laughs> ironically, I kind of like how we worked it, right? Where it's like almost like a franchise model where instead of these neighborhoods, we have like, you know, all the liquor stores and like all the Wendy's and all like the fast check thing, right? Like there should be just neighborhood star fund right there, just like by Wendy's, like just how these franchises have erupted all across the country. Like, why can't we just do that? Hire, like you said, just a project manager to, to own, hey, you run the Baltimore, like the division, right? In that city. And like, to yeah. me, that's that's not even that hard to do. Right. I mean, that's something that could be to me has so much value in it and it gives people a place to go and like an opportunity to try something different. Right. I mean, it, I can't imagine the ideas that came out of just that, you know, one Brownsville one. Right. Imagine the ideas that would come out of like 50 of those. Right. Around so the country. So impressive. I, I'm, you know, getting these different ideas together is really important. I love that you said that about the Wendy's and the liquor stores too, because, um, and, and we work really was onto something if they were more authentic about their mission, you know, I had wanted to start a, a WeWork in uh, Ramallah. In yeah. Yeah. I wanted to start one in South LA and, yep. you know, it, the business model didn't work and it was too early on, but there are ways that we could get this going. And in fact, I'm on the board of a company called innovation collective that is kind of a developer, and uh, innovation center group. And right now they're in like uh, in Porter Lane, they're in, in a lot of, you know, uh, markets that are kind of non-traditional yeah. and they're getting free space from the city, the state or the country. So, cause you need a combination of, you know, it's hard to make money doing this. So if you can get some people to actually give, right? Sure, then of course. It's a blended model. It's called Innovation Collective and I'm pretty excited about it. But I, I love your vision for neighborhood start fund being in all those places. I, I hope one day it will be the case. And celebrating this too, right? Like celebrating the ideas that come out of these places, celebrating the ideas and the people that are different than you and celebrating even, you know, if I go back to Vicor for a second, yeah. why is it that when these mega projects, right, for construction are, are going on, these construction workers will come in they're going to be in that neighborhood for five years, mm. maybe, right? These are huge projects. And instead of being like, oh yeah, you know, being annoyed, we should be celebrating when they come. Thank you for building our city. Thank you for investing in our community. We should be giving them percentages, ownership stake in some of the projects they're on. Like these are things we can do. We have to stop being so greedy. Yeah. We have to stop being so selfish. And it's not a partisan thing at all because both sides of the aisle and everywhere else have become really individualistic and selfish. And I don't mean to, you know, take away anyone's freedom, but we have to be more generous with each other. Like we just, yeah. I mean, that's, I don't think, I think that's frankly, it's, it's originally, it felt like it was embedded sort of like Americans give more than any other country in the world. Right. We're, we're not, we're, we're really good at giving. I think the problem might be is that we're, we're bad at allocating the money correctly. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like really good at just like, hey, there's a, like we'll give just money, right? Like we said, like when Black Lives Matter, all of a sudden now we have hundreds of millions of dollars to to now all of a sudden you know give to black brown communities well it's like well this was the same issue 20 years ago you know 30 like okay it's great now but like you have to be committed like this can't just be a moment where it's like yeah we'll do this and now again 30 years down the line all the neighborhoods look the exact same yeah yeah what are the long-term metrics you're using to measure right like is it press release or not like we, we can do better the commitment i love that you said commitment that's the word commitment. yeah I, I i think you should really check out uh ruben harris uh, i just did an interview with him a phenomenal founder Came, I know. he's, he's what, awesome. what he's doing at career karma is to me yeah. is the most gain like we've talked off and on for years i remember talking to him and he was like they just had like a landing page and he was like dude this is going to be amazing and all that and we stayed in touch a little bit and now it's like all of a sudden his vision is totally coming into fruition because unfortunately because of covid right but then also because of just the economy in general with with a, a yeah. bunch of different things the, the stuff he's doing skill you know skilling workers in underserved communities yeah. with high paying tech jobs is the most it's the most game changing thing out there right now to me because then that sinks into what neighborhood start fund is doing right it's like yeah you have an idea but like if you come to your pitch things with like the skills to actually implement the idea right and then it's like it's just a game changer when when people are skilled and now we can work, work remotely so you don't have to move then you can afford to buy that house in the neighborhood that you're staying in so now you yeah. have the right to say no when a developer comes in and wants to build condos and tear down your neighborhood like the reason why nobody has like the ability to say no because they don't own the property they don't own the property because they don't have good jobs but like yeah, yeah, them yeah. having amazing jobs and owning the property that's then they have real power and that's what i love about what he's doing because it gives individuals um economic power which is which is immensely needed it's so important uh, yeah and and somehow we've gotten so far away from it and one other thing about neighborhood start fund too is like you know there's a concern about harvesting talent from these neighborhoods mm. as well like hollowing them out okay. and so um if if he is successful uh, or any of them are successful there's a piece of the money that has to go back into funding mm. entrepreneurs in that exact same neighborhood yes yes too, which is great because he's going to go back you know we we had to get him out here to silicon valley to kind of learn to do this but he's not going to stay here forever you know? yeah he's gonna want home but he's going to go home with more money to invest in his local community and that's what's super exciting i'll end on a little bit of like the future, right? And it could be the future of core and the future of neighborhood start fund. Cause I think they, they're actually both trying to do like similar things just in different parts of underserved yeah. uh, workforce. So if you want to maybe look at the next five years, like what does that look like from your perspective and just collective ownership. And that doesn't mean socialism for anyone who's out there who's saying that's what <laughs> um, So my life changed because of something called stock options. Mm. And this is having an equity stake in the work you're doing. It's huge. I want that our construction workers have an equity stake in their projects. I want that the neighborhood start fund guys have an equity stake in their neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. I want everyone to be able to have an opportunity to have an equity stake in what they're doing. It's life changing. And there's no reason that you need to have CEOs that own 99% of something and right. they're sh- everyone else has to share these bits. There's no reason 
that we need to have so many billionaires. And I'm not anti-billionaire. I have a lot of, of billionaire friends. But I think at this point in our history, we have to say how much is enough mm -hmm. uh, and what do we need to do with the rest of it? And we need to share that ownership, share the ownership. Yeah, because it's, it's okay to have billionaires, but it's like when we have millions of individuals who don't have laptops, like yeah. let's solve that too. Yeah. <laughs> That's the easy fix. <laughs> you know, you it doesn't mean give them money. Give an ownership stake in the things that you're doing. I'm not saying don't give it money. I'm saying sure. it's not like, I'm not talking about like throw things around. I'm talking about like, let's make it part of our system mm -hmm. that when you help something grow, you take an ownership stake in that. And yep. that's what I love to see. Yeah. If you graduate high school, you get a laptop, right? I mean, even if it's yeah. a public school, you know, private schools can do it. Yeah. Um, but I mean, simple things like that. Like we should not have a workforce in America where they're, they're just, especially now it's like, even if you want to work, right, you could have a remote job, but you can't because you don't have a laptop, right? It's yeah. such a small yeah. thing. It's such, such a small, small thing. thing. Yeah. Or internet access. Sure. Or, yeah. Yeah. And, and then there's, a, oh, wait, sorry. Don't even get me started. There's another, <laughs> and this is more, you know, I saw this in my neighborhoods with Neighborhood Star Fund. I saw this in Eastern Kentucky. Mm -hmm. It's something more. Too. I mean, the laptop stuff is important. The access is important. The money is important. The ownership is important. But you know what else there is? There's a confidence divide. 100%. Good call. And this confidence yeah. divide is exactly mm -hmm. along economic lines. Mm -hmm. If you grow up having stuff, you feel you deserve stuff. Mm. If you grow up not having, you don't even know how to ask. You don't mm. have the confidence to ask. And so you're not getting. And, and that is like with motivation and everything else. And so... With the ownership, I hope comes confidence, equitability and confidence. It's amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time. I mean, it's, uh, I'm so, again, like I'm just, it's great to see people use their, their skills and the talents and things they've learned and kind of like look at different ways to deploy that, that talent and skill into areas that just, and sectors who just have just been left left behind and for a variety of different reasons. And I think while like when you get successful people, right, when you get those stock options and those actually come to fruition, right? Like instead of philanthropy, which is a fine, like there's nothing against that, right? But maybe just open like create businesses that solve the same things as philanthropy is trying to do. Right. Yeah. There's just like you said, you can't you can't have stock options and 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 a nonprofit, right? But you can't in a business. So like create businesses that people can eventually have equity in. Um, so that's why uh, I love what you're doing and I love what the team's doing. So best of luck the rest of this year, obviously. And hopefully 2021 will be a year of growth and uh, you know keep up the amazing work and, and stay inspiring for sure. You too. It's super inspiring what you're doing. Thanks for having me on.